The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
the disciples came back from Sychar with food. Jesus was waiting for them at the well of Jacob. And when they came and found Jesus, he was sitting, talking with a Samaritan woman. She was on her way to go speak to the men of the village and tell them that this man told me everything I ever did. She was in absolute astonishment. This man had just told her that he was the Messiah of the world. Now, the disciples are saying to Jesus, you must eat. They'd been walking all morning in the heat. They were on their way from baptizing in the Jordan River in Judea, now walking back those three days' journey into Galilee. He said to them, I have food to eat which you understand not. John, the fourth chapter. Verse 33, Then the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did they? And Jesus said to them, My food is that I may do the will of the one having sent me and may bring his work to its perfect end. Do you not say it is yet four months and the harvest comes? Look around, I tell you. You must lift up your eyes and carefully look at the fields, for they are white for harvest already. And the one reaping receives a reward and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both the one sowing and the one reaping may rejoice together, for in this the word is true— one is sowing, another is reaping. I sent you to reap for what you have not labored. Others have labored, but you have entered into their labor. The disciples don't have any clue what Jesus is talking about. And to be frank with you, most of us don't either. Well, we can intellectually explain what Jesus meant, but as one dear person said to me, Pastor, I understand the words and the definitions of the words you're using. I just have no way to connect that with my life and my heart. I don't understand what you're talking about. I know what she means. The greatest cry of my heart has been that I could participate in this great ingathering of souls for the kingdom of God, to participate with the Lord in the harvest. But I have not been allowed to participate to this point except in very minor ways. Many years ago, as I was crying out to the Lord about this, he said, One day, in my power, you will accomplish more than your entire life. Those words stunned me because they promised the day would come when the promises of God would be activated 
and I could begin to see the reality of the moving presence and power of God for the salvation of the lost. Now, the promises of God are very prominent throughout the Scripture, and the way we participate in the divine nature, according to Peter, is through these great and precious promises. But let me read just one as we review yesterday in preparation for what I'd like to share with you today. Mark, the 11th chapter, I'll begin reading with verse 22. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Well, I took that promise, and I said I'm going to stand on the literal word. And so I went into my closet. I made a covenant with God that I would pray for one hour every day from 10 to 11 o'clock. And I would read this promise to the Lord, and I would go into my rant about how this promise is wonderful, but if I don't see my prayers answered, then how can I believe what you have said to me? There's another very precious promise. It's in 1 John, the fifth chapter, verse 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. Now, there's a clarifying statement here that caused me great consternation. And that clarifying statement is, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. The implication is that if we're not praying in accord with his will, he will not hear us. And so, of course, the question then must be asked, are we having such a very difficult time having our prayers answered in today's American culture because we are not praying in accord with the will of God? I'm going to answer that question today. You're listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. Thank you for joining this broadcast today. It will be disturbing to you, but I pray it will also be helpful to you. When faced with the promises of God, and we have a desperate need for those promises to be answered, I have experienced on many occasions when those promises were not answered. And of course, we give God an out. We say God always answers prayer, yes, no, or wait. That's simply not true. The only reason I pray is to get an answer. 
an answer that takes care of the problem. And I have prayed for people who were dying, but I was not able to reach God for them. Jesus healed every person who approached him and asked for healing. I have not been able to do that. There have been on occasion people that I have prayed for that have had a miraculous healing. But it's almost as though it's chance. You don't know. You pray and hope, but you don't know that he'll answer. I'm not satisfied with that. Now, to be bitterly frank with you, in the church today, we have come to the conclusion on many fronts that God no longer answers these prayers with miracles, that the miracles were only for the time of the disciples, and he doesn't answer them today. So obviously, these promises were placed there, and there, there was a time when they were answered, but today, they're dead, they're they're not working. The battery doesn't work. Or we become just cynical and say, I like religion and I'll go through the practice. I'll even pay tithe. I might even preach. But look, let's, let's enjoy the life we share together and the love we share together. Let's have a good time together. I listened to one very well-known national preacher, and he said, Look, these miracles are not for today. They were during the early church. So today, go to church and enjoy yourself. You're saved no matter what you do. You cannot lose your salvation. So go to church and just have a good time with your friends and the people. It's, it's party time at church. And I know many churches that function that way. They are party-time churches. I asked one pastor of a very large church, is your church a worldly church? And his answer was unequivocal, yes, my church is a very worldly church. I said, how do you justify that in your mind? He said, well, that's simple. If people don't come into the church, they can't be influenced. So we put worldly music on. We use worldly video clips. We do everything we can to make the sinner feel comfortable in the hope that the day will come when he will have some kind of relationship with Jesus Christ. But you have to bring him in before you can convert them. Well, I'm obviously in total disagreement with that gentleman's answer. I don't see the church that way. But I am, to be frank with you, struggling and waiting upon the Lord because I have people that I love with all my heart who are in severe stress, who need answers. I have people who are 
dear to my heart that are that are Muslim or pagan. And I have no ability to bring them to Jesus. <clears throat> yes, I can talk with them, and I do. But it's a very steep uphill climb. So how are we going to deal with all this? Let's look at a story in Luke, the fifth chapter. Jesus is standing by the lake Gennesaret, it says in Luke 5. It's actually the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee. The people are standing around him, listening to the word of God. He sees at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who are now washing their nets. They've worked all night. He got into the boat that belonged to Simon, Peter, and he asked him to put out a little from the shore so the people didn't crowd in on him and everyone could hear him. And he sat down in the boat and began to teach the people. When he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Now, they'd already put the nets out to dry. They'd cleaned them up. You didn't fish in the Sea of Galilee during the daytime. It was only a night fish. So when he put out into the deep water, they let the net down. And it caught such a large number of fish that the nets began to break. They signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came, and they filled both boats so full that they were in danger of sinking. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell down at Jesus' knees, and he said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Suddenly all that was human in Peter was exposed for what it was, the wickedness, the self-centeredness, the desire for ascendancy and control, ambition. Now Jesus says to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, they left everything, and they followed him. What did they follow him for? Well, to become his disciples, but to become fishers of men. And if you look over here in the book of Matthew, Very interesting. Let me read this for you. Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is verse 19. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, 
and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We know this as the Gospel Commission. When we put these two together, it's very clear that when a man or woman becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, from that point forward, everything they do has to be considered in light of their commission to become fishers of men and to teach to teach people to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. So it's a soul-winning operation, and it's an educational operation, and that a person who's going to follow Jesus, their only concern focuses around fulfilling what they've been called to do and what they've been called to be. The Apostle Paul talking about this in the book of Corinthians. He says, we're called to be ambassadors of Christ and to plead with all men to be reconciled to God. Now, what's this have to do with with promises being answered? Well, is it possible that these promises are not activated because we're not praying the promises in accord with the will of God in our lives. That we are armchair Christians. That we are, we are Christians who go to church and sit and listen and go, but not go to fulfill the gospel commission. We go to live the wonderful American life, to take care of our families, to take care of the financial needs of our families, to take care of business. Because our business is to live the American life and to be successful and to have a house and a car. Is it possible... I'm just raising this. Is it possible that the reason the promises of God are not answered as we cry out to God, because as James said, we will use what God answers for ourselves. Remember, I read this yesterday to you. You adulterous people, this is, James 4, verse 4, Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred or indifference toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Have you chosen to be a friend of the world? I'm not even suggesting being a friend of especially wicked things in the world. I'm just saying, in the world... Everything is about me and mine and getting ahead. Do you think that Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely 
but he gives us more grace. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I have to confess, I don't know much how to go about doing what he's talking about. And so the Christian church in America is scorned. Everyone seems to know that it's a a social club. Everyone seems to know that you can get good business connections there. You can have a good time with other people there. They're good, clean people. So there's a little cleanup of the life, and then you're told that now you're saved, and you're good to go, but the promises of God are dead to you. Oh, there's Clyde Bristol, who who wrote his little book, The Magic of Believing. And he talks about the same thing that some others talk a great deal about, even Christians, and that is the power of faith. Faith is supposed to have some power in it. I've not found that faith has any power. I have found that faith, simply the lifeless hands reaching up to an almighty God, and he answers. Sometimes. Do you think that Scripture says without reason that the Spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? I experienced that. The Spirit of God is very intense. And he keeps calling me deeper. And I come to the radio and I call you deeper. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. What's what's a double-minded about? Well, I've got to win in the world, and and then I want to go to heaven with Jesus. Double-minded. Not taking up the cross and following Jesus. Not being a soul winner for Jesus. Not teaching others what Jesus has said. Instead, using Jesus as best I can to have the best life I can have. He says, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. He says, you you quarrel and you fight. You don't have because you don't ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. All right. I hear it. Then we have to ask the question. How does this change? When was there a place in the scripture where this changed. And I'm going to show you. Over here in the book of Acts, we have the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Let me read this to you. 
Now, Jesus has just ascended into heaven. Chapter 1 of Acts, verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So Jesus has commanded them to wait until, in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You can't help but read the first chapter of Acts and know that there is something specifically connecting these promises of God with the power of God. We've separated those. And then you come to chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And then we read of the power as Peter preached. Men of Israel, Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This is Acts, the second chapter, verse 23. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of the fact, exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. And verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation, those who gladly embraced his message, were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Wow. There was power. Lots of it. Well, now... Let me share with you, and I wish I knew who it was that sent me. 
a little booklet called Fullness of the Spirit by Dr. John Rice. He wrote, or he preached this sermon in 1945. That was my birth date. I want to share some things about the true meaning of Pentecost. I want to show you what it is and what it's not. It's been hyped in many ways today. It's been abused in many ways today. I want to read this for you. He says, Don't any of you pray tonight for the Holy Spirit to come into your body. If you are converted, he is already there. Listen to 1 Corinthians six nineteen to 20 What, know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, that you are not your own, for you are bought with a price? Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You see, every Christian has the Holy Spirit in his body. And the disciples had that before Pentecost. They had already had that for 40 days. The Holy Spirit had been dwelling in them since the day Jesus rose from the dead. And now the Holy Spirit comes. He comes in when one is converted and lives in that body. Now that had already happened to the disciples before Pentecost. Pentecost did not mean the beginning of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They already had received that. I'm not trying to get anybody here to ask the Holy Spirit to come and dwell in you. When you receive Christ by faith as your Savior, then automatically the Holy Spirit comes in and makes you a Christian, regenerates you, and you are put into, baptized into, or buried into the body of Jesus Christ. And you drink in the Holy Spirit. He lives in your body. You become a part of Christ's body the church. I say every saved person already has the Holy Spirit. That is not what Pentecost means. That is not what Pentecost meant to the apostles. Well, somebody else says, I think that Pentecost means the founding, the origin, the beginning of the church. Now, I'm not going to argue with you about it, I think if I had time, I could show you that it does not mean that at all. I think if I had time, I could show you that the church did not begin at Pentecost. But I'll not argue. You cannot show me one verse in the Bible that says anything about the church's beginning at Pentecost. All right, but suppose it did begin at Pentecost. Then let's say Nothing about it, because that's not what God says. And God is not talking about that. I don't really care especially when the church began. I'm just eager that you do not miss the meaning for Christians that God has in Pentecost. Pardon me. So what is the meaning of Pentecost? I'll show you. It is not the conversion of the recipient souls. Those people were already Christians. It is not the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, for he already had taken up his abode in them. 
the meaning of Pentecost is not the origin of the church. Even if the church began then, the Bible says nothing about it, and the apostles say nothing about it. That was not what Jesus promised. That was not what they were thinking about. What was it? We'll go back to Luke 24, where the Lord Jesus said, You are to preach the gospel to all nations. You are the witnesses to do it. But wait in Jerusalem. Tarry in Jerusalem. I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Now, what does Pentecost mean? Power from on high. An endowment of power to do the work God tells you to do. That is what the disciples had. They were given the power to win people to Jesus. They were filled with Holy Spirit to win souls. They had 3,000 souls saved then and went on wonderfully winning souls day after day. Now do you see the meaning of Pentecost? The meaning of Pentecost is power for soul-winning testimony. Now let's come to the first chapter of Acts. Here again we have a little resume. As you know, the book of Luke and the book of Acts were written by the same man. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, recorded by Luke, But ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. He did not say that the Holy Spirit would put you into the body of Christ, which is another matter, but that you will be overwhelmed, covered, surrounded, filled, overflowed with the Spirit of God for power. That's what he meant. And they said, What do you mean, Jesus? And Jesus answered, I mean this, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So again, what is the meaning of Pentecost? Ye shall receive power. Power. I'm not talking about the wind. That happened, but it was not what was promised. It is not the proof that the Lord is talking about. It is not the one thing that they are to get on their minds. And we ought not get our minds on it. It was not the tongues of fire sitting on their heads. That happened, but it was an incidental outward miracle. I say those outward signs may differ as they did then, but that is not the point. The point is that they are to receive power, to have witnessing power, to get people converted to Jesus. That is the meaning of Pentecost. It isn't that they were talking in other languages. It happens that some of them did talk in known language that people understood, and these people heard the gospel in their own tongue, in which they were born. That's all right. But that is an incident. It was not promised that it would be especially this in certain particular languages. That's not the point. The point witness for Jesus and to get people saved. They had power. 
the meaning of Pentecost is power on your witnessing, power on your testimony, power on your soul-winning effort, power for the pulpit and for the pew, to take the gospel to sinners, to teach them everything Jesus told you to teach them. D.L. Moody said Pentecost was simply a, a specimen day. Pentecost was simply a specimen revival. If we want a revival, let's go back and, and have at it as they did then. Well, how is that? Let us get the power of God on us. Let us get the power of the Holy Spirit. Let us be filled with the Holy Spirit or have the gift of the Holy Spirit or be endued with power from on high. As Joel prophesied and as Peter said, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Do you see the point of that? I do not care what term you may use. I prefer the term more often used in the Bible, which is filled with the Spirit. But I don't mind the term baptized with the Holy Spirit, which was used by uh, R.A. Torrey and D.L. Moody, Charles Finney, and some of the greatest evangelists who've ever lived. The term baptized with the Holy Spirit is in some disrepute, however, because it has sometimes been misused. Nevertheless, I don't mind your using that just so you mean what the Bible means, that Christians can have an endowment from heaven, can have the breath of God upon us, can have a miracle-working power upon us and in us, and we can be filled with the Holy Spirit, and we can do what God told us to do. The meaning of Pentecost is simply the power of the Holy Ghost on Christians, the power of God in and through us to do what he told us to do, that is, to carry the gospel to every creature. Remember Acts eight, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and ye shall witness unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and under the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, what I want to say to you is that I believe the fulfillment of all of the promises of Scripture are dependent upon us having Holy Spirit power. Now, the question is asked, how am I going to know whether or not I'm filled with the Holy Spirit? How am I going to know whether or not I'm baptized with the Holy Spirit? Well, I'll tell you. It's not going to be difficult to tell at all. In the first place, what are you looking for? What do you want? You say, well, I want to feel as light as a feather. I want to hear angels' wings flapping I want to see gold dust falling from the ceilings. I want to see a great light shining around. I want to feel electricity come in my hand and run all through my fingers and toes. Well, you're now talking about something entirely different from what the Bible is talking about. I am not interested in that. 
If everybody here today were to hear the angels' wings flapping, were to see a great light shining, were to feel electric shocks running through their bodies, I would not give a care for all of that. If God wants to do that, all right. But that's not what he's talking about here at all. If everybody here were to fall under a spell and fall down, I would not be impressed in that. That is not what the Bible is talking about. Let God do whatever he wants to do. I will make no complaint. But that's not what the Bible here is talking about. It's talking about being endued with power from on high. Do you see it? What is it you want? Do you want to know what it takes? Do you want to know what the sign is? What do you want to know? You say, well, I want to be better than everybody else. That's not the point. I say this. Whatever there is in sanctification, and there is a Bible doctrine of sanctification on which we might not agree as to all the detail, but whatever it is, that is not what happened to these people at Pentecost. Whatever it is, that is not what God is talking about. God is talking about power to win souls. Now, wouldn't you know if you had power to win souls? You say, what signs? Well, listen to this, I tell you. My friend, you can know, as I knew last Saturday night when I preached in Portland, and 16 people came to Christ. I knew Sunday night when I came in great weariness, having missed two nights of sleep, having slept what I could with my clothes on, on a bench, on the plane, and then on the straight seats coming up on the train from Portland another night, I came with a good deal of fear and trembling and burden. But God was here, and he had a great number of grown men and women saved Sunday night. I knew God's breath was on me. I'm not making any boast, for I'm not worthy of anything, but I needed no other sign than that. If we have Seattle broken down and the power of God comes, if Sunday night or Sunday afternoon or Saturday afternoon or tomorrow night or any other time the power of God is on me to win souls, I will know that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm praying for. That is its own sign. If you win souls, that is what you want, isn't it? That is the sign itself. What is the sign of the fullness of the Holy Spirit? Acts one eight gives it. You shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. What is the sign? The power. Power to do what? You'll be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. That is the point. Do you see it? This is the only way to have revival. I won't share more of that with you today, but I want to summarize. We're almost out of time. I think there is a very distinct, clear, biblical connection between the endowment the empowering by the Holy Spirit and the promises of God being active. 
praying in accord with the will of God. The will of God is that the kingdom of God would be advanced, that men and women would come and accept the glorious message, the joyous message of salvation, that men and women would then be taught how to walk as Christians in Jesus. For the Christian person, and we'll get into this tomorrow, it means to lay our life down for the gospel of Jesus. What's that mean? Well, it means that I will take no actions without first considering how will my action impact the advancement of the kingdom of God. So I will not be consumed in my job. I will be consumed in my job with the salvation of the lost. I will have as my primary focus of life building the kingdom of God and doing the work of the kingdom of God. That's why I rejoice so much in some of you as you sacrificially give month after month for the work of the gospel on this radio broadcast because you recognize there is a need for some very straight, honest conversation about the kingdom of God and about your role in that kingdom. The gospel of Jesus Christ was never about self-improvement and self-advancement. The kingdom of God is about laying down our lives with Jesus, being crucified with him, and now doing all in our power to bring the glorious message of reconciliation to the hearts and minds of people. And then, as we pray for the miracles to occur, those miracles will draw attention not to us, but to the message of Jesus Christ to enter into the kingdom of God. You see, if I'm praying for things that are for my own private needs, my own private pleasures, God is not going to hear. I pray for financial resources. Why? Well, because I need the kingdom of God to advance. I need to have food to sustain my body. I need to have a roof to protect me from the heat and the cold. I need to have a car for transportation. But what's the purpose of all that? Not my own pleasure. The purpose of all of that is to build the kingdom of God, to call men and women to the service of the Lord Jesus. Now, there are many services, there are many different gifts that the Holy Spirit brings to us to function in what Jesus calls the body, the church. And as we exercise those gifts, we're going to have to have the power of the Holy Spirit. Or there will be no ability on our part to move God with the promises of God. Well, we're out of time. I'd love to hear from you. 
And I want to thank you, Michael. I just heard from you, just received your wonderful check. And others of you, one dear brother sent $250 via the internet. Thank you. I just wait on the Lord for the financial resources to do his work. Would you write to me at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195? Or you can go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you, my brother, my sister. I hope this message has been helpful to you. I pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon you for the work of the gospel. I'll talk to you soon. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Christ.